Please be aware that today's conversation includes a discussion of drug use. Victoria Vanstone was born into a family that loved to party. Partying meant loud music, dress-up costumes, crazy antics and booze. Loads and loads of booze. Vic joined in the drinking at 13 and over the following decades, well, it became the biggest thing in her life. She drank at rave parties. She drank when she travelled the world. She drank when she hooked up with random guys. And when she became a mum, she drank as a reward for getting through the day. Vic couldn't imagine life without booze. She couldn't imagine herself without it. If she wasn't slamming down shots and finishing off bottles of champagne, she'd be one of those god-awful, boring, sober people. Until one Sunday morning at home on the Sunshine Coast, she woke up with another awful hangover, her two little kids waiting in the next room, and decided to do something radical. Hi, Vic. Hi. Tell me about the house you grew up in. Where was it? I'm from a little village just outside Reading called Streetly, a beautiful English village with sort of Tudor houses and beautiful parks, just stunning, that one day of, of the year where you could go out, of course. <laughs> and who lived at home with you? It was me and my mum and dad, and I had three older siblings. I had um, my brother and sister, who were from my, my dad's first marriage, and my other sister, Sarah. And we lived in a beautiful little country lane in a lovely house. It was a beautiful place to grow up. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with your dad. What kind of stuff would you do together when you were a kid? Well, my dad was always listening to comedy. It's one thing that I grew up hearing. He used to sit next to the record player and play Derek and Clive and Spike Milligan and all of the classic sort of 80s and 70s comedians. So I used to sit with him and watch him laugh, looking up his hairy nostrils every time his head flipped back in laughter. And... We used to go to the local swimming pool. We used to love going for walks. We were a really close family. And, of course, my house was a party house. So one of the biggest connections I ever had with my parents was preparing for the big night. What would happen on the day of a big night? What did preparations involve? Take me through that. Funnily enough, I always knew the day before because my mum would go around the house and change all the light bulbs from a normal colour to red. <laughs> so we knew that they were having a party. Strong bordello vibe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just gave it that good vibe. And she used to put some balloons on the letterbox and then everybody knew that the Vanstones were having a party. How would your mum herself get ready? My mum was the host, so she's an amazing cook, my mum. She can prepare a meal for a 1,000 people in like five minutes. It just appears out of the kitchen. So the days before would be preparing the sausage rolls in the 80s heater trolley, everything piled up with aluminium foil over the top, and she would be rushing around the kitchen getting everything ready food-wise. It was always kind of cheese and pineapple on sticks and, you know, the classics. And... I just used to love watching her transform from the mum to this kind of glamorous party queen. I used to sit on her bed as a child and watch her get ready. Her lovely ginger hair was always this big booth on it, took ages to get ready. And I used to sit and watch her and spray all the hairspray everywhere and put her rollers in and do her nails. It was like this magical transformation, which was just beautiful to watch because I just imagined myself doing that one day. Would she have a drink in her hand while she was transforming like that? Of course. There was always a little flute of cheap sparkling wine sat on her dressing table waiting to be drunk, yeah. And what about your dad? What was his role and he was as the, the party the, got underway? Yeah, he was more of the dad jobs kind of guy. You know, he was preparing the drinks, getting the glasses ready, doing all the jobs that mum didn't want to do, like take the bins out and put the tables out. So my dad was always running around kind of getting like the house ready. So, yeah, he was kind of the, the drinks man. And how wild would those parties get? What do you remember seeing as a little kid watching on? I just remember I always used to sit in the corner of the room and I knew that no one would notice me if I sat quietly and put good tunes on. <laughs> so I used to get the, all the, rec the record player out and sort of flip through all these old LPs and put good music on so no one would notice me in the corner. And I used to sit and watch the happy revellers kind of get floppy and I'd watch them deteriorate and it fascinated me from a young age to see people consume this liquid and it 
seemed to relax them and make them more joyful. I probably went to bed before they vomited in the punch bowl. I probably was put to bed at sort of midnight if I kept quiet enough. But I just love watching on and watching how this liquid made people change. And I've always been fascinated with it from that point on, I think. So you weren't like, you know, Safi and Abfab trying to make everyone behave. You were there like, go for it, adults, yeah. go hard. I was learning, watching on from afar, observing what they were doing, soaking it into my little squishy child brain, just hoping one day that that would be me. Where did your parents store all the alcohol at, at their place? We had a garage. Well, it was kind of all over the place, really, but there was a, a particular space in the garage that sort of glistened when you went in there that was stacked up with racks of wine. And they used to go over to France a lot with, on their old Citroen. And I remember we'd go over there and we'd sort of think we'd go on holiday, but we'd be going to uh, the cheap wine shops that were just over the border at Calais. And on the way home, the exhaust of our car would drag along the ground because it was so full up with uh, cheap booze. So, yeah, they stored it in the garage and there was a big pile of it in, in different forms that looked magical to me. When did you first take a bottle from that pile for yourself? When I was about 13, I felt like it was my time that I was ready to go. I'd watched on because all my siblings were older than me. I had watched on from afar for many, many years, sort of learning the tricks of the trade. And I thought, right, this is my time. I've watched people enough. And when I was 13, I went into that garage, stole what was ever in front of me, stuck it up my jumper and ran down to the local recreation park where I crawled underneath the tree and swigged away at it with my friend. How did it feel? I felt all of a sudden very in the moment, like future and the past didn't matter anymore. That's what alcohol gave me. It was a really present feeling of, I don't care anymore. I don't care about expectations or, or things that have happened to me or, or what, how well I'm doing at school or whether a boy likes me. All of those things sort of drifted away. And I remember sitting on a swing and sort of lying back and my hair flowing against the ground and just feeling free for the first time ever, like nothing mattered. It was quite a nice feeling back then. So at, at 13, Vic, did you just have a couple of sips or that first taste of alcohol? How far did you take it? Well, I remember it not tasting very nice, but knowing that I had to do it. It tasted bitter. It was red wine that I'd stolen. So that is a strong taste as a kid. It doesn't taste like anything you've ever tasted before. It was so vinegary and horrible, but I just knew I had to get it down my neck. It was like, this is what I need to do to join in the sort of cheerful pandemonium within my family. I need to, you know, carry that mantle high. And it tasted horrible. It turned out the friend I was with wasn't taking any sips and I drank the whole bottle in about two minutes flat which then caused me to be quite ill. But I, I wasn't worried about the consequences then. I just thought, right, I'm going to learn how to do this well and that way I can join in the fun. How did things escalate from that first bottle of red wine? I started stealing booze every weekend. I always say the drinks cabinet became like my nightclub at the weekends. From a very, very young age, I went to the drinks cabinet. As soon as my parents had mates over... Me and my cousins or my sister and brother, we were all like stealing booze and cigarettes to, to smoke in the bedroom. As soon as my parents were a bit sloshed, we all headed there and were necking like strong liquors. Did they have any idea? Do you think your mum and dad? I don't think so at that age. I think they would have had something to say about it. They weren't forcing me to drink. It was nothing to do with them. It was my rebellious side and wanting to join in. So it was just me and my mates. And I knew from a young age that if I could do this well, that I would always have mates. I would always have a story. I would always have something that I could give, that I could entertain people with. My thing was going to be alcohol. And if you come to me, there's a place for booze, giggles and cigarettes, and we can always be friends. So I used alcohol from a very, very young age, not only to make mates, but to keep them. It was kind of my tool that pimped my personality a bit. So this was sort of the late 80s, early 90s, when dance music and rave parties become this huge thing in yeah. the UK. How did you get introduced into that world? Throughout those years leading up to my raves, I'd had a bit of an incident with some friends where I'd lost some friends and 
I, my behaviour came a little bit more reckless after that. It wasn't a bullying thing. It was more just two of my best mates didn't want to be mates anymore. And it sounds very minor, but I've realised now that kind of trauma is very relative. And for me, it broke my heart. And from that point onwards, not only did I want to drink, but I, I was interested in taking it to the next level and sort of reaching oblivion mentally. Because I think perhaps I was trying to block out some things that had happened to me. But of course, I didn't realise that at the time. So rave culture just happened to come along at that perfect time when I was ready just to step in and get wired. It was the perfect culture for me. And my sister started going to raves a long time before me. And I could see she used to come home and all the gear, you know, the feeler trainers and, you know, the hyper colour T-shirt. And I just wanted in. And I managed to persuade her on New Year's Eve many, many years ago to take me to a, an illegal rave in, in Reading, where I'm from. And so illegal raves, like how would you find out where they were on? What was the process of even knowing how to get to those parties? It was funny in those days. She used to, they used to get in their old bangers, which was always kind of like a Ford Cortina or a, or a Fiat Panda or something. And they would bumble off down the motorway and they would meet in a petrol station on the M4 towards London. And there would be a payphone there that would ring a certain time and it would tell you the whereabouts of the illegal rave, whether it was a farmer's field or a, you know, an abandoned warehouse in London and everyone would squibble it on their on their <laughs> cigarette packets and they would then all head off in their old bangers up the M25 to find this illegal rave wherever it was. The youth of today with their mobile phones I can know. only imagine this. <laughs> They've got it easy, imagine this big. And so what would happen once you arrived? What did it look like? What was going on? It was an incredible experience at that young age. I think I was 14 when I first went to a rave. And I just remember standing in the car park, you know, in the darkness with people handing sort of bags of drugs around. And it was all kind of a bit seedy, which I really liked. I loved the paraphernalia of, of drugs and alcohol and the, the getting it and putting it together and all the processes involved with it. it was, I was really obsessed with, with the drug itself and how it got into my system, which I found so fascinating as a kid because I loved watching people be happy and then sort of destroy themselves for some reason because it's kind of what I was doing as well. Um, but I remember standing in this car park in a farmer's field in the middle of nowhere and just seeing mist coming out of this sort of barn. Just It looked incredible with lights and lasers coming out of the windows. And I remember walking in, you know, with a couple of E's tucked into my bra and just thinking, this is, this is where I belong. These are my people. And I think I thought that because my drug taking and alcohol use was really easily disguised in that sort of environment. It's the same as going to a pub and drinking or going to a, you know, a dinner party. If people around you are doing the same thing, of course it's going to feel more comfortable. And I just found a spot on the dance floor, danced the night away and, and found my kind of people. How regularly were you going to those sort of parties at high school? Well, we went probably once a month and then we were going up to London to all the rave sort of clubs in London. So... I just chose to immerse myself in environments where my drug-taking, promiscuity and alcohol use got sort of absorbed into the crowd. Despite your best efforts, you did finish school and got a place at university. What kind of uni student were you, Vic? <laughs> I got in through clearing, which I think is something that they give to students who are fighting with their parents and are basically dropouts, but... <laughs> managed to get a spot. My parents dropped me off with a sign that said free beer here. <laughs> For you to put up? For me to put up. As a way to make friends. As a way to make friends, people. yeah. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's how me message. and my family made friends was like, here you go. This is where the party is. This is where you're going to have fun. So of course that sign didn't attract intellectual studious types. They were all kind of dope smoking losers like me but I did make some really great friends at university I didn't go to one lecture the whole time I was there that must be some kind of record yeah I Not think it one, was because this is before yeah. online lectures you yeah. just weren't receiving any I just didn't go teaching whatsoever no I wasn't interested the party was more interesting than and me. and again that was a period in the UK in the 90s where that laddate culture was big girls were meant to kind of keep up with the guys it was really it, it was the whole culture was seeing girls in particular as heavy drinking and drug taking and yep. partying in a new way. Of course, another perfect culture for me to absorb my habit into. Ladette culture came along and it was perfect for me and my mates. We just went along with it. You know, we should have shown that we didn't have to drink the men under the table. That would have been the more feminist approach. It would have been the better approach, wouldn't it? But of course, 
I found it hilarious that I could drink more than anybody else. And that was kind of my tool. It was my, my social tool to show myself and to show my presence in a room was, look, I can stay up later than everybody else. I can drink more and I'm the girl you want to hang out with. And I guess it was people-pleasing in a way. I just wanted people to like me. And since that incident at school... I wanted them to stay because those girls had left me. So I, I had this obsession with not only making friends, but being so likeable that everyone loved me forever. I realise now how toxic that is, but, yeah, it was very detrimental to me. After dropping out of uni, you got work in a pub in Brighton and had a big group of friends and this wild partying continued there. But what happened after a night when you shared a bunch of ecstasy pills with a friend? Yeah, so... My drug use went along with my alcohol use, as it does. My inhibitions went out of the window after a couple of pints of beer, of course. A couple of things had happened until that night. I had been arrested and just a few just crazy stories, which I actually laughed about afterwards. Arrested for a driving A drink driving drunk. incident yeah. when I was young, yeah. And I never took heed of these things. These red flags were whipping me across the face for many, many years. But I never took heed because I was so entrenched in this, in this culture. Um, and I'm very embarrassed to talk about those things now. I do feel a lot of shame about these events that took place, but I just didn't know any different. I... I went out one evening with a friend of mine and I had some money. I don't know why. I never had any money. I was always kind of trying to steal a line off somebody I know off a doorman or something. But I had some money and I thought, what am I going to do with this? I probably could have, you know, bought a book or done something that <laughs> helped someone else or dinner. But no, I went out and bought a lot of bags of drugs and I took them all. And I'm not proud of that fact, but I was very, very poorly afterwards. I went out for the night, gurning in nightclub toilets, talking to strangers, just completely off my head. And it ended up, I used to go home after these big nights out and just try and come down and try and like sleep it off and try and get back to normal, ready for a, a week of whatever I had ahead, like working normally. And that night, I had a huge, massive wave of panic come over me, something I'd never experienced before. I'd always been very, very confident and very happy in myself, even though I drank a lot. I always, you know, came into every situation I had with confidence. And for the first time, as this wave of anxiety washed over me, I lost myself to it. And I woke up the next day thinking that that was just a one-off, that I was having a bad reaction to the drugs that I'd taken. And it turns out that I stayed like that for a year. A year? Yeah, I stayed in this... It was a psychosis, really. I'd overdosed on ecstasy and I put myself into some sort of... My, my mental equilibrium had gone. There was no levels there anymore and I couldn't get myself back. And I remember during that period looking in the mirror and just being like, where have you gone? Like, the drugs had taken a piece of me. The alcohol was to blame, of course, because of my inhibitions being gone and me partaking on all these drugs and promiscuity and everything else that I got up to, it led to me feeling mentally unwell. So where did you go, Vic, during that year when the panic and anxiety were there? Could you stay living in Brighton? Well, eventually, after going to see a doctor locally and going to the local psych ward, actually, where the doctor was very unkind to me and asked me to name the Queen's children, which, of course, I couldn't do. Is that an indicator of mental illness It was the, the assessment, UK? yeah. Right. I felt like I was being assessed for sort of a Victorian <laughs> asylum. But actually asked me if I wet the bed as a child and could I name the Queen's children? And I just said, well... I'm sorry, I can't, but I did probably wear the bed as a child. I'm not sure. You have to ask my mum. But yes, so that wasn't successful. I ended up going home and getting my parents to pick me up and saying, look, I really need some help. And I ended up going to see a just a local therapist and having cognitive behavioural therapy. And after a year, I did actually get better. But of course, as I, I was a party girl, I decided never to take drugs again from that point on because it had caused so much illness but then, of course, I had a goal. My goal was to start drinking again because I wanted to be back to who I knew. My identity, my entire persona was revolved around alcohol. So my aim when I got better was to sit in a pub and drink a pint with my mates. Once you were feeling good again and, and back taking the drug you wanted to take, alcohol, you headed off travelling to Thailand and, and really spent most of the next 15 years or so backpacking around the world, working in pubs and hanging out on beaches, having all sorts of adventures. Was booze a part of all of that? I think booze was in my backpack the whole time. 
it was clever. Again, I absorbed my behaviour into these environments. You know, I owned bars in Thailand. It was the drinks cabinet of my youth I was plopped into every time I went anywhere. I got myself a lovely Thai boyfriend and I could move around. If I did something embarrassing or woke up with shame and regret about the night before, which I did very often, often because I couldn't remember, I call it the fear of the unknown. I used to wake up not knowing what I had done. And obviously the risk involved in that is huge. And that the next day would bring back those feelings of anxiety. So I could just do a runner. Travelling gave me this kind of disguise where I could be whoever I wanted to be for one night and then I could rush to another town or another city and be someone else. As you say, you were running a bar, you owned a bar with a, a Thai boyfriend that you had. Where was it? Tell me about what it looked like. It was bar. a paradise place. You know, we, we had a upturned squid boat that we changed into a bar and it was paradise. I felt like Huckleberry Finn every day. I used to fish for my lunch and walk on the beach. And it was just paradise there. Um, yeah, but unfortunately, Mother Nature got in the way on that one. Yeah, well, tell me what happened when you were visiting family in Australia over Christmas at the end of 2004. Yeah, so that was the year of the tsunami, unfortunately. And I was, luckily for me, I was one of the lucky ones. I was away visiting my sisters who were living in Australia by that point. And I remember my dad coming in and saying, there's been, there's been an earthquake, Victoria. There's, there's been a wave where you live. And I couldn't quite comprehend, because that's not something that has ever happened in our lifetimes, you know. I just couldn't comprehend what was happening. And when the pictures started to come onto the screen, it was very clear it was where I lived. So I tried to call over my friends and everybody wasn't answering. The phone lines were down, my boyfriend was missing and I couldn't get in touch with any of my friends. What did you decide to do? Well, all of the planes were flying, obviously, people back to Australia, all the tourists that were there. But I actually flew in the next day. I decided I wanted to go and find him. I waited until the aftershock seemed to have finished and I flew back into Thailand to try and find my boyfriend. What was the atmosphere on that? plane trip like? It's one of the strangest experiences of my life being on that plane because everybody on there knew that they were landing in their own personal nightmare and you couldn't look people in the eye on that flight because eyes instantly filled with tears and all you could do was sort of wish people luck and hope for the best but when we landed it was clear that it was going to be a terrible situation some people had people there to meet them who were there with bad news. Some people, it was a head count mm. and people were counting what members of their family had lived and what who wasn't there. And it was terrible to sit on my suitcase in that airport that morning and watch people's lives change around me. It was absolutely a desperate situation. And what were you seeing as you got closer to your old home? Well, what I remember as a bustling area. It was Crabby Town where I used to live, so a sort of port near the island of Kopipi. And it was just full of people and, and coffins. Oh. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. It was a sense of numbness in the air and silence. I can remember hearing the monks chanting at the Buddhist temple up the road and this strange feeling of silence being the only way we could respect the people that had died. Nobody knew what to say in that situation. It was frightening and serene at, all at the same time. A in, very interesting experience, actually. And I was, again, I felt like one of the lucky ones because I didn't have kids. I didn't have parents there with me. I hadn't lost anyone as far as I knew. And I was just there to witness this devastation unfold on a day-to-day -day basis. Could you find your boyfriend? I didn't find him for about a week. I was searching up and down and going to the hospitals and I hadn't had any news on him. It was chaos there. Mm. And eventually someone said they'd seen him at one of the army boats that had visited the island where we were living, a place called Kojum, and they had seen him picking up some debris of our bar. So I managed to hitch a ride on an old fisherman's boat and get to the island where I found him. That must have been a, a really emotional reunion. Yeah, it was lovely to see his big smile. Yeah. <laughs> Did... Seeing that extreme, terrible, traumatic devastation up close, did it lead you to reassess your own life in any way? I mean, did you want to take better care of yourself after, after escaping death? 
I'd like to say it did, Sarah, and I became, I stopped and became a barrister or something. But unfortunately, as I said, I wasn't very good at taking heed of these red flags, you know. It's a big red flag, this one. I just thought, well, life's so fragile. That's all I could think. I've seen it. I've seen it up close. I've seen death. And I think, well, I've got to live my life to the fullest. And of course, for me, living life to the fullest meant drinking. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. You and your Thai partner broke up and you later got involved in a really damaging, abusive relationship. You finally got yourself out of that and came to Australia. Who did you rediscover at Circular Quay in Sydney? Yeah, that's a nice story for once. <laughs> Not all the calamity of the past. I, I bumped into an old friend of mine from university, John, who took me out for a lovely lunch at Circular Quay. And I thought perhaps maybe I'd missed out on a connection we'd had at university all those years ago. We hadn't seen each other for 17 years. And somebody had said on Facebook, oh, do you remember John? He lives in Sydney now. You should give him a shout. And we had a lovely lunch and we were engaged within six weeks of that meeting. Six weeks? Yeah. Why did things move so quickly? I just knew he was a catch. I think all of my boyfriends before, you know, I was more interested in how good looking they were and what tattoos they had and what albums they had in their collection rather than whether they were a kind man. And really, I was just looking for a kind man and he sort of stepped into my path. It's interesting that there was a part of you that knew that there's a lifeline. I'm going to grab hold of it. I totally agree with you. I think I wanted some, some stability then. I think I was searching out something else. I'd, I'd been through a terrible relationship and I knew that the decisions that I were making weren't working for me anymore. And I wanted to see a normal life. I wanted to see what people did on a Friday night. I wanted to see, you know, I wanted to queue up at the post office and talk about mortgages and <laughs> all of the things that it seemed make people happy. I've been so busy travelling for all of these years that I think I'd lost sight of normality a little bit. How much drinking went on at your wedding day? A lot, but luckily there was a little baby growing in my tummy by that point. So I witnessed my wedding for, from a different perspective for the first time. My wedding was in fact my first ever sober social event I've ever been to in my life because I was three months pregnant with my son George. Once he arrived in the world, Vic, what were those early weeks and, and months of motherhood like for you? I think nobody really warns you. We know it's well, going to be do, hard. Well, they do, but I don't think yeah, none of us listen. listen. No, we don't listen <laughs> to like, what? Yeah. As if. Yeah. I think I wasn't prepared for the transition from party girl to mum. I found it much more isolating than I could have ever imagined. I mean, I had a lovely husband. We lived in Manly in Sydney. We had this beautiful life. Yet I could sense that I was very, very lonely my husband went to work every day and all of a sudden I had this massive responsibility. I was in charge of a child. This reckless party girl had a baby to look after and it was the first ever consequence to my drinking. Had you drunk at all during your pregnancy? No. How did it, how did it creep back in, start to creep back in? I think after the stress of the first few weeks, you know, that first six weeks after having a baby, you're not sure whether it's day or night. As soon as I got through that... I wanted to find a piece of the old me again on some grubby dance floor. I wanted to find out where the old Vicky had gone because I felt like I'd lost myself. And I think that's where that mummy wine culture comes from. It's us just wanting a piece of ourselves back. And within six weeks, I was planning, I'd met a new mother's group and I was like, right, come on, girls, when are we going out? That whole mummy wine thing that you mentioned, and it's kind of like the subject of, internet jokes and it's sort of like shorthand, but it really infuriates me. I understand it. But at the same time, it just feels like it's just such a crap reward to offer mm. women for all the work of motherhood. It's like abase yeah. yourself completely. Yeah. And But look, here you go. Have a giant 
tankard of, of white wine and that's going to make it all okay. It's amazing how powerful that messaging is. We see it as this reward at the end of the day, like I've done well, I've been a good mummy, so therefore I'm going to write myself off. And it's not the right way to deal with things, of course I realise now, but at the time it felt like my only escape. As a culture, I don't think we judge anyone as harshly as we judge mothers who drink. So here, drink, but don't drink too much because then you're unmentionable, you're unforgivable. Well, it's very difficult because there's a line and the line is invisible. So you don't know when you've crossed it. And for me, I had no idea where that line was. Like, what is okay? Am I allowed to go out and have a couple of wines? And if I get wasted and end up being really drunk and being sick, is that alcoholism? There is a line where people judge you and they're handing you a drink going, go on, have one more. But then if you go too far, it's like, well, we don't want to know you anymore. And the problem is with its entire culture is that the line is invisible and you don't know when you've crossed it. Well, what would happen on those nights out with other mums? Because I imagine it was a different scene than sort of, you know, full moon parties in Thailand. What was happening among the mummies of Manly? I remember I noticed very early on in any evening that I went out on that I was always more pissed than everybody else. I was the one sort of going back and forth to the bar where they were all just sitting, sipping on one glass. So I was always reckless with my drinking. Once one was down the hatch, it was the first one that did the damage. Everything else was out the window and I was ordering the bottle of wine because it was my job to entertain and keep everyone happy, of course. Would that stand out to you then at the time, you know, that thought like, why can they drink like that and I can't? Did that bother you or not? It did for a little bit. When the hangover started to get really, really bad, I questioned why everybody else was posting pictures of themselves online having a lovely day when I was in bed and couldn't even move my head and kept the only walking I did was to the toilet and back to sort of regurgitate kebab. (laughs) But actually, I don't want to post that anyway. No, no. That's, a very, <laughs> that's not an image you want, is it? So, yeah, I, I noticed that people could control it better than me, but I thought, well, this is my reputation and I'm fun. So I never, ever stopped to sort of self-reflect and go, is this doing me damage? Why am I doing this? It wasn't until the anxiety got really, really bad that I sort of had to confront my issue. Well, you, you managed to have another little hiatus from drinking when you became pregnant with your second child. I mean, what was it like for you, Vic, to have those those months when you were pregnant and not drinking? Were you missing getting drunk then or, or did it offer you a little glimpse of a different way of being? It was a window into a different life every time I got pregnant. The anxiety until I had my second child had been amping up every weekend. So if I went out, I sometimes didn't go out for a month. We're not talking about everyday drinking here. I'm talking about socially normalised binge drinking, which for me may have been one time a week or one time a month. But when I went, I went hard. And that caused huge anxiety for me. So in the months before I got pregnant, in the years actually, before I got pregnant with my second child, every Sunday was spent in bed feeling terrible remorse and shame that I had a child in the room next to me that I couldn't care for. That's when the questioning began. So that pregnancy with with my second child it was a hiatus and I thought gosh this is nice this is nice to be myself and be able to socialize and not have to drink and I remember thinking to myself I'm going to try and moderate I'm going to try and be a good drinker I'm going to learn how to do this well and not be the drunkest no the last man standing or the drunkest person in the room for once I'm going to be a good drinker how did those efforts at moderation go absolutely terribly (laughs) As you can imagine, I failed every single time. And there's there's only so many times you can fail without having to self-reflect in the end. Well, what happened one Sunday morning when you were in bed with an awful hangover? It was actually the first time I drank since having my second child. It was six weeks after she was born. She had feeding issues. It had been stressful. I'd been up for weeks on end. I now had a four-year-old and I was finding the whole motherhood thing quite overwhelming to be honest and I didn't know what to do my friend said do you want to go out for a drink and I was like of course I jumped on the opportunity I planned on having one glass of wine within 10 minutes I'd ordered a bottle and then I was doing shots at the bar I was breastfeeding and I was not proud of my behavior it just showed how quickly everything went off the rails for me and then the next morning I woke up the same anxiety was there And I felt like I was going to die. That's how bad my anxiety was. I felt like, oh, my God, I'm actually going to die of a panic attack. It was causing me to be very, very mentally unwell. And is that anxiety 
because you were anxious about the drinking or is it something produced more sort of physiologically by the alcohol? How do you understand that connection between your anxiety and the drinking? I think it was a mixture of everything. It was the fact that I was unable to care for my child. It was my behaviour. It was me questioning why everyone could drink normally. It was me losing my personality. It was me numbing out the mundaneity of being a mum. It was this whole smorgasbord of things that were all leading me to overdrink. So take me back to that morning where you're waking up, you've had your first big night out since giving birth to your second child, you're feeling completely terrible. Mm. Then what? I just remember sitting with a crying baby in my arms that I wasn't able to feed. And I just remember thinking, gosh, what are you doing, Vicky? What are you doing? Who are you? Do you want to be this mum who's going out and getting wasted every weekend? It was the first time I've really seen myself from above and gone, is this who you want to be? Do you want this reputation? And is this reputation even good for you? So I started questioning, which I had never done before. I started questioning my alcohol intake. And once the questions started, they didn't stop. Did you tell your husband what was going through your mind? I walked into the lounge that morning. I padded in there feeling very remorseful and very embarrassed that I'd got drunk again and and broken all my promises to him and the children that I was going to do better. And I just took his hand and said, look, I've tried. I've tried moderation. I've tried everything. I'm trying to be a better drinker and I'm, I'm failing and I think I need professional help. It just strikes me as such a brave thing to say out loud, you know, to say it to yourself and then say it to your partner. Was, yeah. it, was it a scary thing to I, say as well? It was a total relief, quite honestly. Because it felt like, so I'm going to get emotional again, I, it, it felt like the beginning of something rather than something ending. I knew that my alcohol intake was affecting my life and the life of my husband. His face had changed. We used to go out on fun nights out and it would be very jolly. But I'd noticed in the recent months and years that his face had gone from loving to being concerned about me. And I could feel that in my bones, that something was changing between us because of what I was doing. I didn't want to make people worry about me. You know, I was very good at giving everybody the impression that I had this wonderful life. You know, my Facebook pictures of me with my beautiful children and playing on the beach. But inside I was in turmoil because I wanted to drink but knew that it was having massive impact on my life. So it was really, really hard to come to terms with the fact that I was going to potentially address my best friend, which was booze. So where did you first go to potentially maybe think about looking at this situation with alcohol? I looked online, which of course we know is a minefield, isn't it really? It could have been anything. I think there was the option of going to the jungle in South America, licking toad's backs and <laughs> having ayahuasca, which was quite appealing, quite honestly. Or... There were all sorts of alternatives on there, but I actually ended up finding this amazing lady, local therapist who lived up the road from me, and she was an expert in dealing with addiction and addictive behaviours. And Which, what happened with her? What, what, what was involved, Vic? A lot happens in 12 weeks of therapy, but what really happened was she laid my life out in front of me all of the things that we've spoken about today, which I'd never really taken into consideration. I'd just shoved them under the carpet and gone, well, that happened to me, but I'll just carry on. I'd never taken any of my life very seriously. It had all been part of the party and part of the fun. But what we did was we laid it all out like a deck of cards and we took out the cards that I didn't like and we kept the ones that I did. And I managed to rebuild the foundations of my scrappy house you know, and put a big chandelier in the in the hallway. I managed to rebuild myself um, from a kind of messy shed to a mansion. And that's what therapy does. It allows you to spread your life out in front of you and choose the bits that you like. I've heard people say that getting sober isn't just about stopping drinking. It's then about dealing with all of the things that were making you drink in the first place. So... It must be a pretty emotional 12 weeks. Like, are there moments when you think, oh, this is worse, I don't want to be doing this? I didn't feel at the beginning that I wanted to dredge up all of this stuff from my past. I didn't feel like it was relevant. I felt that my drinking was very present and that I was making a conscious present choice to drink or not drink. 
But then when we looked into everything, I always remember her saying, Vic, this is sad. Like, the tsunami's sad. Like, this relationship that happened to you, it's sad. And I think I'd brushed aside my sadness and had never dealt with it. And in the end, it turned out that I was using alcohol because I was not only trying to make myself more happy, but trying to keep everyone I met happy. And it was a huge responsibility. So I had to go to therapy and break all of that down and find out my reasons why, why I drank. And that was that made me capable of understanding that in therapy, not only do you learn about that present situation, but I had to unravel the past to be able to rebuild my future. So all this deep reflection is going on in your head, in your heart. But what would you do when the urge the craving to do what you'd always done and get a drink came up. What practically would you do? I think it became so clear by talking about it that alcohol was having a negative impact on my life. So because the questioning was now so loud in my head every time I saw alcohol, I had become very uncomfortable around it. If I saw people drinking it, it made me sort of cringe and I felt that old feeling of panic coming back. So as soon as I started therapy, of course I went in there wanting to learn how to be a good drinker, but it became very clear quite quickly that that wasn't going to be an option for me and it had to be forever or indefinitely because drinking and me are not a good combination. Was there a moment that you remember saying no to a drink, that first time of not having alcohol when you would have automatically gone to take it? Absolutely. It was in the first few weeks of of having therapy. I remember going home and it was chaos. John was home. The kids were acting crazy. There'd been something spilt on the floor. I think the fire alarm was going off and I was like, oh my God, we managed to clear everything up and, you know, make sure the children are okay and put them to bed. And I was like, right. And my hand went into the fridge and clasped hold of a bottle of cheap Pinot Grigio that was banging around in the door. And I remember my hand reaching from my body. And that was one thing I learned in in therapy was, you know, I could have spent my whole life blaming the culture, the environment, the generational aspect. I could have spent years blaming all of these things around me. But in that moment, I took responsibility for my actions. And that's when I knew that I was capable of changing was when I made it my choice. And I remember my hand coming out of my body and seeing it, grabbing the neck of the bottle of wine and seeing my hand and just going, you need to make a better choice right now. That was the responsibility right there. It wasn't my parents. It wasn't the parties. Blaming anything else was going to be futile. It had to come from me. And I let go of the bottle, moved it a little bit to the right, grabbed the orange juice and poured myself a glass of orange juice. And that changed everything. So without you drinking, you had to learn how it was, what it was like to be a sober human being in the world. What was the weirdest thing to start doing sober? Of course, it was socialising. Like, I mean, socialising is awkward anyway. (laughs) It was very, very strange, a whole new world. I held a alcohol beer for 18 months when I went first went out. It was like it was my lifeline into who I was. So I could still show people, look, I'm still here. I didn't tell anybody. I don't recommend doing that. It was a silly thing to do. But I was so scared of people judging me or not liking me anymore because I didn't drink that I just thought this is about me and my family. And I didn't tell a soul. When did that change? I think I started to embrace my sobriety after 18 months and go, actually, this is the right choice for me and this is an amazing thing to do. And once I'd got a few social situations under my belt, I was able to grow in confidence and that's what each of those situations is. It's a confidence boost. Early on, I was stepping into situations feeling really nervous and I always liken it to a bright light. In any situation I went into, it felt like when I was sober, there was a bright light shining on me and everybody could see me and hear me and I could hear and see myself. It was very raw and emotional and I could sense everything. And I think I used alcohol to dim that light. And over time, I managed to dim it by just repeating the same behaviour and I kept going out. And over time, I got used to going out. And it didn't feel so raw and so I didn't feel so exposed and it made socialising a lot easier. So it is hard at first, but eventually that light dims and you start to feel more comfortable. 
And I guess over that period of time, you learnt to trust yourself. Absolutely. Trust was a massive issue. I learned in therapy that I had never trusted myself around alcohol. You couldn't because I was going to drink it dry. It was just how me and alcohol worked. I was going to finish it off and drink the bar dry because that's what I thought was the right thing to do. It took me a while to learn to trust myself again. How did you spend your 40th birthday, Vic? Yeah, I partied. I partied for the first time without drinking which was an incredible feat, something I never imagined I could do. And it taught me to be able to step into situations with that confidence and own who I am and be authentic and have joyful conversations with people because I was so wasted most of the time that I thought that was fun. One of my mum's famous sayings is, if you can't remember a night out, then it's been a success. So I had to turn that on the head. And that's what I do with my sobriety. I'm fully conscious. I'm not unconscious anymore. I'm fully conscious now. What have your mum and dad made about this change in your life? I mean, they're super proud of me. My parents, we've always had a wonderful relationship. They are a conga line of festivity, my mum and dad. They're 80 and 85. It never stops. They've got friends around all the time. They are still the life and soul of the party. But they respect my choices and they understood that my drinking went further than theirs, that stuff happened to me that was out of my control and out of their control. So there's no hard feelings there and I just love them to death. They're wonderful people. You were worried that if you stopped drinking, you might stop being fun or likeable or know how to have a good time. Yeah. Have you discovered something different about who you are if you're not using alcohol to power through all those social situations? Sober people have a reputation, don't we? (laughs) We are the boring ones. And I hated sober people when I was a drinker. Really? I didn't want them around me because I didn't want somebody else. If I couldn't remember my behaviour, I didn't want someone else (laughs) I didn't want someone else telling me the next day how I had behaved. So I feel now I have to change that reputation and I have to go to parties. (laughs) I I stay out probably till about nine o'clock now. That's when I've had enough and want to go home for a cup of tea. But I do socialise and I'm not boring. Are you still on the dance floor? I'm still on the dance floor, Sarah, of course. I don't do the swan dive as often anymore. (laughs) The clothes stay on. (laughs) Yeah, the clothes stay on. There's no nudie runs, but I can still throw out a few shapes, I can tell you. (laughs) You know, it's it's clear that you're in such a happy place. And I, I think you are reframing what sobriety means because... I guess we still think being sober is about giving up something, giving up alcohol. But what have you got through the choices you've made over the last few years to live differently? What's come to you that wasn't there before? Well, there's a a sense of clarity in every choice I make, which, which brings that trust back to me. I trust my choices now, which is amazing. My brain started working again. My skin looks better. My relationships are better. My friendships are better. I do more exercise, I go boxing, I pound a boxing bag instead of a, you know, instead of a box of wine. I am more present with my children. I didn't realise until after I gave up drinking that I was sending a really horrible message to them was that mummy needs wine to deal with you. Mummy needs wine to deal with your behaviour and I need to numb out from you. And I hope that the main thing I hope is that I'm a a cycle breaker, that I break this generational cycle of binge drinking and that my children will have a choice about alcohol. I feel like growing up that because of all those cultures we've discussed, that I didn't really have a choice. It was everything coming at me was like drink, the government, you know, the the social aspects, the everything about it, the environmental aspect and the culture, it was all aimed at me. And I never really felt like I had a choice to drink or not, like most of us don't. And it's everywhere, everywhere we go. And I think now being sober, I feel like I'm going to stop and give my kids a choice. You'll have to ask me in 10 (laughs) years whether that's worked or not. But I think my choice will ripple down into my family, I hope, for generations to come. And I think it is about choice in the end. There isn't a massive load of drama in my drinking story. It's just about a very normal binge drinking habit, which a lot of people don't address. And I was saying to you before the show, you know, there is this vast this vast spectrum of alcoholism that we all sit on somewhere if you drink. And it's just a matter of finding where you are and accepting that 
maybe alcohol isn't working anymore and and looking into it. I really, really hope people look deeper into their relationship with booze to find out whether it is having negative impact on their life and whether that's affecting themselves, their mental state, their anxiety or even their children because everybody is deserving of healing and even if you feel like it might not be a problem, there is this vast place between the pub and an AA meeting where we all fit in and whether sobriety is possibly a better option for you. How important has your community been for you your sober community in this new way of living? It's such an eye-opener to know that there's so many people out there that don't drink because I never met them when I was a drinker. Can you recognise each other? Is it like kind of, you know, you've got a special radar? Yeah, the sparkly eyes normally. (laughs) The joyful sparkly eyes, yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, it's just been incredible to know this, this whole sober, curious scene out there, people questioning their alcohol intake. And it's such a pleasure to meet people that are on the same path as you because if you go to a sober event, for example... There's no chit-chat. You can just say to somebody, why are you here? And you get the full story. It's incredible to hear these amazing, brave stories. And I feel like these people are really stepping into themselves. That's what sobriety is. It's about finding out who you were before you started drinking, that child, and all the things you enjoyed then, and then finding out who comes after it and really learning to love that person. It's actually not about booze. It sounds cheesy and a little bit woo-woo and spiritual, which isn't me at all. But finding out who that person is that doesn't drink anymore is actually a really fascinating experience. I sound like a bit of a hypocrite here, <laughs> but it's just what I've learned. How so? Why well, just because I've, someone said that once, because, you know, I was a massive drinker all my life. And I've experienced full anxiety from it. And I know the mental impact it can have. And I've popped out the other side as somebody that I could never have imagined even existed within me. So it's just been this incredible learning journey of finding out who I was once the ethanol was burned off my skin. And actually, she's all right. (laughs) I think she's great. I really like her. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Victoria Vanstone's memoir is called A Thousand Wasted Sundays and her podcast is Sober Awkward and there's a lot of info and links for support at the Sober Awkward website. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Beverly Wang, the host of Stop Everything, the show that makes you smarter about pop culture. Every week, I sit down with a guest critic, and together we sort through all the hot takes flying through the pop culture universe. We help you decide what to watch or skip, and whether that long read your bestie dropped in the group chat is really worth your time. Stop everything. It's the show that makes you smarter about pop culture. Follow us now on the ABC Listen app.